So this will be a very different approach to listening to a sermon on our podcast. Uh, Due to technical difficulties, uh, the sermon from this past Sunday uh, was not recorded, and so we are giving you the opportunity to hear more from a devotional standpoint what was shared on Sunday. The primary text is actually 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 10 to 12. And the context in this is very unique. So when we read this, I'd like you to consider uh, what would it be like if you were living about 750 years ahead of the life of Christ and God has just told you that there is going to be the suffering Messiah that is going to literally change the world through a suffering. And you're given all kinds of details by God about the suffering Messiah, and, but not giving the time of when it's going to happen or the context by which it happens within. And you're also not told all the things that it's going to accomplish that's going to affect the rest of the world. And so as you consider that uh, mindset that the prophets had to certainly have as they were considering these things that were being told to them. That's the uniqueness that Peter brings in this text uh, about the prophets of old when they speak to Christ being the one who is going to suffer. So let's begin reading in verse 10. It says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look onto these things. So in this text, it points to the, the reality that these prophets were looking upon a grace that was going to be coming. So it says at the beginning of verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you. So they're already understanding that whatever this suffering of the Messiah will accomplish will actually be a grace that will be coming to people, to mankind. So a work that was not earned by people, uh, work that was not uh, waged for by people. It was, a, it was a work done by the Savior for the sake of people and given to them freely. And so this grace will be coming. They also wanted to understand uh, when this would be and what it must be like. So they sought understanding. Uh, and it says in the text at the end of verse 10, intentionally, and with care as to what it will mean for not only their time as they look forward to the coming of the Messiah, but for those of us post the coming of the Messiah, what it will mean for us. And they wanted to understand this. And so they sought with great care. And so they studied all the prophecies that had been spoken, not only the prophets, prophecies given to them by the Holy Spirit, but other prophecies as well to know what this might mean. And then it's clear that it's like, well, when might it happen? And so in verse 11, you'll see that they they long to know what would be the circumstances surrounding this so they could actually predict the time of its happening. And and so while some of the prophets received, you know, information from God as to some of the circumstances surrounding it, 
it really didn't give enough understanding to know specifically when the Messiah might come. However, what was given to the prophets was that, yes, indeed, this Messiah would come and there would be suffering, but it would accomplish a lot. In fact, it speaks to this idea of glories that will follow. So let's look at some of the sufferings that were predicted uh, in the Old Testament as to this suffering Messiah. So consider Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 15 to 31, where it says that as a baby, the Messiah will be plotted against. So even his beginning of, of coming on this earth will be uh, treacherous for him as there will be a plot to kill him as a baby. But yet in that very text, Jeremiah the prophet is able to say, but it will not be accomplished. The plot won't work. Hope will end up prevailing. Then you see in Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13, it speaks that this Messiah will actually be betrayed by one of his own. And so, again, you're talking hundreds of years prior to the time of Christ, and they're speaking to the betrayal that Judas was going to do uh, towards Jesus. And even in the text in Zechariah, it specifically states, for the price of 30 pieces of silver would Judas then uh, betray his own Savior. Now, some might say, well, perhaps the Gospels wrote all these things down in the manner that they did so as they could check all the boxes of some of these prophecies of the Old Testament. Well, that could be a possible theory to, that has some validity, but the challenge to that is, is that these were written as by contemporaries of Jesus, of which there were witnesses that were contemporaries that would be able to um, invalidate those things if they were creating a false storyline. So they would all know that Jesus is a historical figure. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Jesus uh, also did all these miracles that they talked about in their writings of the Gospels. And, and Jesus did die on the cross. Jesus did suffer. And certainly they knew that the disciples had seen the resurrected Jesus and were willing to go to jail, be beaten, and even die for that testimony. So it's not likely that, and it would be very difficult to accomplish when you consider that there are over 365 messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. To try to write a storyline that would line up to all 365 would, would take a tremendous amount of work, especially when you consider that it was multiple authors uh, sharing all of this. So it's, a, it's an incredible thought when you start realizing that all these prophecies written of old, hundreds of years before, were so accurate in what they portray. So Zechariah saying 30 pieces of silver is what he'll be betrayed for is an amazing detail that we now see and know in hindsight. But he also says in Zechariah that, that the Messiah would be pierced and be acknowledged as the source for grace. So as Peter says in his text, that concerning this salvation that's going to come to people, the prophets spoke of grace that was to come, and, and Zechariah speaks of that grace, that this is going to be done for a people not deserving of the work that is being done by this Messiah. Another text set, speaks to the, the clarity of the purpose of the suffering. Consider Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 6 and, and 11 and 12 of that same chapter, and listen as I read it as to how incredible 
of a portrayal of the life of Christ. It, it almost sounds as if it's being written while watching the life of Christ. It says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. But he has, but by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he has poured out his life unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. That very text was written minimally 750 years before the crucifixion of Christ. And yet it pours out very specifically that which the, those who wrote the Gospels would say as to the purpose and intent of the life of Christ. Consider also Psalm 22, where it speaks of this Messiah being abandoned by his very own flock. And we see that on the night that Jesus was betrayed as the disciples left him uh, to be crucified and left him at his suffering and he was left all alone. Psalm 16 verses 8 through 11 says that he will die, resurrect, and glory will actually come. Which leads me back to the first Peter text. It says that when, they, when these prophets spoke of the grace that was to come, they tried to gain understanding, to search intently with great care and trying to understand the time. And yet the spirit of Christ in them was pointing to a, a suffering Messiah and to the glories that would follow. So what are these glories? What are the glories that are to follow? Well, they didn't know the glories to follow. I mean, the prophets are only speaking that they, they're being led by the Spirit of God to know that, yes, there's going to be an incredible amount of glory that will follow the suffering Messiah's uh, selfless act. But the specifics to that, not discerned at this point. It's part of what they were looking to understand. But it also says in here that, that as we now have hindsight, we can see that the glories that would follow would also be included in the life of the Messiah itself. I mean, you, you see his, the, in, the, in Jesus Christ at his transfiguration, and, and it, it says that his glory was, on, was prominent before Peter and, and a couple of the other apostles as they were there on that mount in northern Israel. It says also that when Jesus was revealed before them after his resurrection, that there was a glory about Jesus after his resurrection, that they even had a hard time describing what, what the appearance of Jesus was like. And then ultimately, it says there will be a tremendous amount of glory radiating from Christ when he returns to take up his church. And what a beautiful moment that will be when he comes back and it says that he will come on a white horse and he will have a sash around his waist saying the king of kings. And that glorious moment is yet to come. And so we see the glories that were to follow the suffering Messiah is manifested, yes, in Christ, but it is also the glories of Christ manifested through the church. So it was revealed 
to them, again, going back to these prophets, it was revealed to them by the Holy Spirit that their work was not just for the present reader, but it was for those who are to come post the suffering of the Messiah so that they would understand that this gospel, the good news of what Jesus accomplishes on the cross is going to bring glory through Jesus and also through, manifested through the church. And so it gives greater clarity for those of us as we read this, we can see that yes, this glory is also in the church. Now what's fascinating in this is he ends this, the, verse 12 was making the statement that even angels long to look into these things. Now in the original language in Greek here, it's, it's the term used for longing to look, uh, that look term is perikrypto, which means an intense continuous look. In the English or in our street language, we might use the phrase, being on the edge of their seat, looking to see what happens next. So the angels literally have been longing since the prophets have been speaking of these things, have been longing to see how is this all going to happen? Because they don't necessarily know all that, how it's going to happen and when it's going to happen. They just get orders at the various times to participate. I mean, it was the angels at the beginning of when, you know, the Messiah was going to come. They were the ones bringing the messages that he is coming. And then it was the angels that delivered the message that he has come. And then it was the angels that were there that were ready to, to be at the beck and call of Christ when he was being tempted in the desert. And it was the angels that were ready to come at any moment at the word of God if God was willing to respare and, and, and save Christ from that cross. But all the while, they realized that no, this is the will of the Father. And so they're watching to see what happens. And then imagine from Good Friday to that, that Resurrection Sunday, what the angels must be thinking is like, I know this isn't the end of the story. How is this going to happen? And then it was the angels that were the ones that told uh, those who went to visit the tomb that he is not here. He is risen just as he said he would. And so the angels have been riding this journey as well, longing to look into this and, and trying to understand how is this going to happen and what's going to happen next. They're on the edge of the seat just like any of us. It's also cool to understand the future, that as they go through, I mean, it's them on the edge of the seat that every time a, a person gives their life to Jesus Christ, acknowledging that they are a sinner in need of being saved by God and realizing that Jesus is the only path to finding reconciliation with God, that when they by faith receive that grace, those angels are the ones that stand up and cheer at every moment that that happens because they realize the glories that are following the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then we know that they're called to serve the church and, and help us along the way. But I believe one of the coolest moments for the angels yet to come is in Revelation chapter 7, at the end of, of the time here on this earth, that the entire church will be collected from all of history and will be collected in one place and we're going to all be worshiping the Lamb. And it says that we will be singing of the salvation and worshiping God of the salvation that we receive from Jesus Christ. And then the angels will join us in that song as we sing, Holy, Holy is our Lord God Almighty. And so the angels are sitting on the edge of their seat watching the glories to come. 
the glories that have happened since the resurrection and the glories that are yet to come and each person who gives their life to Jesus Christ and then the fulfillment of the return of the King of Kings at the end of time. And so what a beautiful picture that this has been painting about the glories to follow. But there's one other piece that I think is part of these glories to follow that was undiscernible for those who are prior to the cross. And, but these prophets, again, they know there's going to be many glories. They were able to discern that from the Spirit. And, and so there's the glories of the Messiah himself. There's these glories that we just talked about that the angels have been watching happen. But here's the big mystery that, that was not discernible then, but is now. And that is that the powerful presence of God will no longer be relegated to a single room in the temple, but rather will be given to walking temples. So each time somebody becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, the presence of God indwells them by the work of the Holy Spirit. And that would be mind-blowing for those at the time of the prophets because for them, they understood the presence of God was relegated to one place and that was on the Temple Mount to one place called the temple and to one room within that temple called the Holy of Holies. And so for the idea that the presence of God where the Shekinah glory had been witnessed to come on that place and that there was such fear to go into such a holy place to the point where the priest who would enter into that room once a year would prepare for his possible death by sewing bells onto his robe and, and tying a rope around his right ankle so that if the priests on the outside of that Holy of Holies heard the bells crash, they would know the priest had passed because he was sinful in the way and manner by which he entered in the presence of God, that they could pull him out by that rope. So imagine then the prophets who lived in that time being told that holy of holies, that curtain's going to be torn at the very death of that Messiah. And the presence of the Lord will no longer be relegated to that place for worship, but will now indwell his church. So every person who is a, becomes into relationship with that Savior will then be a walking temple, a literal dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. That is an incredible glory that was not able to be discerned, to be spoken of by the prophets, but yet we now get to see it. In fact, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and 20, speak to this confidence that we now have in being able to go into the full presence of God and not fear condemnation, not fear destruction. And so we get this beautiful thing that the curtain that used to separate the presence of God from mankind is now the body of Christ itself, the blood of Christ by which we enter and then we are received as holy and therefore as walking temples. So glory goes to the lamb who was slain. That's the glory that follows. So even these things that are awesome for the, the church, the priesthood of the believer, those who are becoming these walking temples. While that is glory, that glory only happens because of the lamb who was slain on our behalf and by his blood. So therefore, any glory that, that the church receives is due to the lamb and so therefore glory goes to him. And then the glory of Jesus Christ when he comes back for his church will be on display and then the glory of the church and the Lamb together will be unified. How beautiful of a picture that will be. And so ultimately, the takeaways from this text that I'd like to share is this. That yes, in the context of 1 Peter, he's writing this letter to a church that is suffering for the name of Jesus. 
and to give them encouragement, which he's been doing over the last couple uh, weeks as we've studied this First uh, Peter passage uh, in those first nine verses, uh, we see that, that Peter was giving them encouragement that there's hope beyond uh, the suffering that they are currently experiencing. And that, yes, God will use that suffering to sharpen them and to make him more like their image, like his image. And now he's saying, well, just so you know, you're in pattern with the Messiah himself who suffered. And look what happened when he suffered. It led to the glory of himself and the glory of the church. So yes, in suffering, glory can come out of it. And number two, because the Messiah suffered, because Christ suffered, salvation has come to the many. And the angels were the ones to say glory to God when they saw that the salvation came to the many. And by faith, we experience this grace of God even in our own suffering. And as a result, when we go through suffering and we experience the grace of God, we can then join the angels in when we say glory to God. And because of this grace and the glory of Christ on display through us, both the angels and the saints can say together, glory to God. So let me conclude this message with you online here with the passage found in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful." And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see that glorious day approaching. So I trust that after you've heard this passage, that you'll take great comfort that we had a Messiah that led the way of not running away from suffering, but running through it so that a glory could come into the church that would save and redeem us and give us hope for that great grace that has provided us. And by faith, we accept that act. Glory to God.